Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. If you're here, you probably love podcasts, just like me. Have you thought of starting your own? Let me tell you, it's one of the best decisions I've ever made. I love it. But when I started looking into podcasting, I was overwhelmed. Then I found Buzzsprout. The team at Buzzsprout is passionate about helping you succeed. They have tons of guides, blog posts, and so many, many how-to videos, which were a lifesaver for me. I'm not tech savvy at all, let me tell you. You'll get a great looking website, audio players that you can drop into other websites, detailed analytics to see how people are listening, tools to promote your episodes, and more. Listen, podcasting isn't hard with the right partners. Buzzsprout even gets your show listed in every major podcast platform, even the one you're listening to right now. So join the 100,000 podcasters already using Buzzsprout. I'll make it even easier for you. Follow the link in the show notes so Buzzsprout knows I sent you. That gets you a $20 credit if you sign up for a paid plan and help support my show. Thanks, everyone. Hey everybody, welcome back to Crazy Strange Days Podcast. I'm pretty excited today. I'm fairly stoked. We're going to be covering one of my favorite uh, subjects, Bigfoot. And one of my favorite stories. And if you know Bigfoot and you're a fan, then you may have heard this one. I'm going to get right into it. I cannot wait. So, like, the fellas over at the Blurry Creatures podcast, awesome podcast, by the way, I love those guys, they like to say that Bigfoot is like the gateway drug into the world of cryptids. For me, it was. Um, So, for a lot of us, it started with shows like In Search Of or films such as the Patterson-Gimlin footage, you know, Patty, and so on, even more importantly, encounters of our own. I even have an embarrassing and slightly unsettling one myself. I'm not going to tell it tonight. 
Uh, stories going back hundreds of years from the First Nations oral traditions to the present with the testimonials that fill podcasts like the Sasquatch Chronicles, right? Another great podcast. It's fairly clear to me, at least, that we have a fairly large bipedal critter out there. That's pretty scary, but I think so. Now, as for, you know, what it is exactly, that's up for some debate. And we know there's usually two camps. You know, you're either one or the other or somewhere in between, but it's usually one of those two camps. Yeah, so there's a ton of Bigfoot stories. And for me, one always comes to mind. It's the Ape Canyon incident from 1924. Those of you who know it, it's pretty frightening. It's terrifying. A crazy story. Ape Canyon is located in the, like the southern, southeastern, um, like a shoulder off Mount St. Helens in Washington State. We'll start with an account from one of the eyewitnesses just after this incident happened. Um, keep in mind the other miners agreed to keep the details of these events um, to themselves for obvious reasons, but uh, this guy Smith, he's kind of a no-nonsense type of guy with a bit of a temper. Um, he appears to be the one that, uh, you know, he leaked the story. And he even, uh, I think a couple years prior, he reported some activity that was kind of going on around their, their camp. They had been out there for six years mining this gold claim. Um, so at least once about two years before he, you know, he's reporting strange footprints and goings on in typical fashion, you know, the Rangers wanted him to say anything other than ape men. And, you know, they're repeatedly kind of guiding him towards, ah, you saw a bear. Ah, you saw a Wolverine, you know, yeah, you saw a bear. You know, they kind of, they, they knew what was up, but what, you know, what are they going to say? You know, ape men. You know, who's going to, they're going to lose their jobs, right? Something, you know, it's just deflection there. So now this article is like Smith's take. Um, and in like 1967 is backed up by Fred Beck's own telling and his, he released a booklet um, entitled, I Fought the Ape Men of uh, Mount St. Helen, Washington. It's kind of a long title. So we'll get into it. Uh, Bigfoot 1924. This is from the Rainier Review, Friday, July 18th, 1924. Strange Animal Scene. A story that rivals the most spine-tingling tales of fiction has set Kelso and Southwest Washington, as well as this section of Oregon, agog with curiosity and speculation as to its authenticity and truth. It is a story of an encounter with strange, hairy, ape-like creatures at the base of Mount St. Helens in the vicinity of Muddy River, eight miles from Spirit Lake. The men who brought the story to Kelso are Marion Smith and his son Ray, Lexington and Fred Beck, and Joe Peterson who have been prospecting the wilds of the Saint, the Mount St. Helens country for the past six years. 
As told to a representative of the Kelsonian, the story by Marion Smith is reproduced word for word. Fire at Animal We have been prospecting there for six years. About 16 days ago, Beck and myself saw one of these animals peeking from behind a tree at a distance of about 100 yards. We fired, and I think I hit it in the head. It fell back as though struck and curious to know the nature of the animal. We crossed the intervening canyon, but it had gone by the time we reached the tree. We noticed large tracks from 13 to 14 inches long and resembling those of a man. I had warned my son to carry a rifle whenever he went into the woods. We had seen these tracks in former years and determined to investigate it. We came in, f in for the fourth, but said nothing to anyone of our experience. Wednesday, while we were at the mine, Roy went to the spring for water, carrying only a revolver. As he was returning, he heard a crack in the elders, excuse me, alders, and turning, saw one of the animals charging out of the woods at him, waving its arms over its head and striking its chest. He fired at it with a pistol the animal coming within 15 feet of him before it turned back into the woods. He was badly frightened and hurried back to camp. No kidding. Thursday, Roy and Fred encountered another of the animals as they were going to the cabin. They fired at it, and Peterson ran out of the cabin with his revolver. Between them, they fired 16 shots, the final shot by Beck apparently striking the animal and toppling it over the edge of the canyon. This canyon has steep sides and we could only have gotten down by using ropes. I heard the animal fall and I tried to look down, but it was so steep I couldn't see the bottom. Creatures come back. That night about 11, we were startled out of sleep by rocks falling through the hole in the roof of our cabin, which served as a smokestack. The bombardment continued until after two in the morning. I insisted on building a large fire to frighten away these animals, which pushed, pushed against the door and made a great deal of noise around the cabin. Drumming on their chest, it was a terrifying experience. We nailed the door shut and I advised not to shoot so that we would have all of our ammunition in case they broke in. In the morning, we were glad to start home. Six years ago, when we first located our claim, we saw the strange four-toed tracks with the toes short and stubby, almost square across, and have seen them several times since. Two years ago, the strange animals sought to enter our tent, and we found tracks around the tent in the morning. Excuse me, woods are searched. All this week, the woods around the cabin were being combed with hunters for the strange creatures, but so far, no report has been heard from the hunters. Various explanations for their presence have been advanced, and many in Kelso have ventured to say that the story is the product of imagination. The miners insist, however, that they saw the creatures and their stories are given some support from old-timers who have heard of the creatures that are said to inhabit the country there. The story was given full credence by a member of the all right, so this is where I start murdering pronunciations, so forgive me. 
The story was given full credence by a member of the Klalam M. Clan tribe at Waukeum, Washington this week with the appearance of a lengthy article describing the little-known tribe called the Siactics, which are said to be a skeleton in the Northwest Indians' closet. Because the more advanced Indians of the Northwest have been ashamed of the Siactics, they have kept the secret of the existence of this half-animal tribe. Please remember, this was like 100 years ago. People were, you know... People were of their time. It's a bit ignorant nowadays by our standards, but... Yeah. Failure is predicted. Descriptions given of these strange Indians tally in every respect with what the miners said about them. Indians in Washington country, however, are skeptical about the success that awaits the hunters. As their habits are so uncanny that it is a foregone conclusion that they will not be seen. The story is being thoroughly investigated by game officials and other authorities in Kelso and the territory in which the creatures were seen. Creatures may be Indians. Hmm. D.F. Howard, pioneer of Stella, Washington, was in Rainier Tuesday and Wednesday and paid the review office a call. Telling of a tribe known as the Seoctics Sorry. Which are below the average Northwest Indian in many respects and which have almost never been mentioned. In this article, it is claimed that the, that tribe, my pronunciation is garbage. Sorry for this, guys. That this tribe stand fully seven feet in height and some have been said to be eight feet. Their bodies are covered with hair, giving the appearance of huge bears. It is said that these Indians take 12 lives for each of the lives taken in their tribe, which might bear out the statement that the animals returned and stoned the cabin after it was thought that one of them had been killed by the miners. So, that Smith's account from the Rainier Review, Friday, July 18th, 1924, You know, it's kind of crazy that they would even consider that this was a lost tribe of, you know, First Nations people, Native Americans. But not all surprising, right? I mean, we know how it was. So let's get to some of Fred Beck's account. You know, this is, um, you know, Smith's partner, basically. These two were kind of in charge of this whole mining operation. And it's, it's, it's to be noted that Fred didn't use the real names of those that were with him. So when he talks about Hank, he means Marion Smith. So we're going to go through some of his account. So this is, this is Fred Bex. I wish to give an account of the attack and tell of the famous incident of July 1924 when the hairy apes attacked our cabin. We had been prospecting for six years in the Mount St. Helens and Lewis River area in southwest Washington. We had from time to time come across large tracks by creek beds and springs. In 1924, 
I and four other miners were working our gold claim, the Vander White. It was two miles east of Mount St. Helens near a deep canyon now named Ape Canyon, which was so named after an account of the incident reached the newspapers. Hank, a great hunter, a good woodsman, was always a little apprehensive after seeing the tracks. The tracks were large, and we knew that no animal could have made them. The largest measured 19 inches long. It was in the middle of July, and we had just received a good assay of our claim, and everyone was excited. We had been hearing noises in the evening for about a week. We heard a shrill, peculiar whistling each evening. We would hear it coming from one ridge and then hear answering whistling coming from another. We also heard a sound which I could best describe as a booming, thumping sound, just like something was hitting itself on its chest. It's kind of crazy. They both go through this this like ape theme, like they're pounding their chests. I mean, I don't know if they're wood knocks, knocks hollow log knocks, but we'll go with it. Hank asked me to accompany him to the spring, about 100 yards from our cabin, and suggests we take our rifles to be on the safe side. We walked to the spring, and then Hank yelled and raised his rifle, and at, at, at that instant, I saw it. It was a hairy creature, and he was about 100 yards away on the other side of a little canyon, standing by a pine tree. It dodged behind the tree and poked its head out from the side of the tree, and at the same time, Hank shot. I could see the bark fly out from the tree from each of his three shots. Someone may say that that was quite a distance to see the bark fly, but I saw it. The creature I judged to have been about seven feet tall with blackish brown hair. It disappeared from our view for a short time, but then we saw it running fast and upright about 200 yards down the little canyon. I shot three times before it disappeared from view. We took the water back to the cabin and explained the affair to the rest of the party. And we all agreed, including Hank, to go home the next morning as it would be dark before we could get to the car tonight. We agreed it would be unsound to be caught by darkness on the way out. Nightfall found us in our pine log cabin. About midnight, we were all awakened by a tremendous thud against the cabin wall. Then we heard a great commotion outside. It sounded like a great number of feet trampling and rattling over a pile of our unused shakes. We grabbed our guns. By actual count, we saw only three of the creatures together at one time, but it sounded like there were many more. This was the start of the famous attack, of which so much has been written in Washington and Oregon papers throughout the years. Most accounts tell of giant boulders being hurled against the cabin and say some even fell through the roof, but this was not the case. There were very few large rocks around in that area. It is true that many smaller ones were hurled at the cabin, but they did not break through the roof, but hit with a bang and rolled off. Some accounts state I was hit in the head by a rock and knocked unconscious. This is not true. 
The only time we shot our guns that night was when the creatures were attacking our cabin. When they would quiet down for a few minutes, we would quit shooting. I told the rest of the party that maybe if they saw we were only shooting when they attacked, they might realize we were only defending ourselves. We did shoot, however, when they climbed up on our roof. We shot round after round through the roof. We had to brace the hewed log door with a long pole taken from the bunk bed. The creatures were pushing against it and the whole door vibrated from the impact. We responded by firing many more rounds through the door. They pushed against the walls of the cabin as if trying to push the cabin over. Hank and I did most of the shooting. The rest of the party crowded to the far end of the cabin, guns in their hands. One had a pistol, which still is in my family's possession. The others clutched their rifles. They seemed stunned and incredulous. The attack continued the remainder of the night, with only short intervals between. The attack ended just before daylight, just as soon as we were sure it was light enough to see, we came cautiously out of the cabin. It was not long before I saw one of the ape-like creatures standing about 80 yards away near the edge of Ape Canyon. I shot three times and it toppled over the cliff, down into the gorge some 400 feet below. Then Hank said that we should get out of there as soon as possible and not bother to pack our supplies or equipment. After all, he said, it's better to lose them than our lives. We were all only too glad to agree. When we were back home in Kelso, Washington, Hank told some of his friends and somehow the story leaked out to the papers and the great hairy ape hunt of 1924 was on. So a link to, you know, Fred's, Fred Beck's booklet can be found in the show notes. Um, you can read about Fred's previous psychic experience, how he determined that the ape men he met were, were supernatural beings, not entirely of the world. The book uh, it contains some observations about uh, Native American peoples that, you know, we've kind of touched on this before. Certain, you know, they, they reflect the attitudes, you know, of this time. And I believe uh, Mark M Marcel has tracked down the location of the old cabin. Um, he's found some some relics, an old beam with you know metal spikes, and um, it's pretty interesting. Uh, he's a, he, I believe he's a uh, surveyor, so that's kind of his deal. That's what he does for a living. But he's the authority on Ape Canyon, so everybody should check him out. Um, this guy, Jim Carter, he disappeared in uh, 1950 down on Ape, in Ape Canyon. Um, Jim Carter, he was 32, was with uh, a large group. of I think there was 20 members of this climbing party, and they were all from Seattle. They were on Mount St. Helens in Washington, of course, uh, 1950, May 1950. Um, on the way down the mountain, he left the other cli climbers near a landmark called Dog's Head at around six thousand or 8,000 feet, I think. Um, Carter was an experienced skier, mountaineer. He told the rest of the climbers that he'd ski around to the left and take a picture of the group as they skied down the timberline to the timberline, which is pretty cool. Be a good shot. 
Um, from here, Carter took off down the mountain in a wild, death-defying dash, uh, apparently taking chances that no skier of his caliber would take unless something was terribly wrong or, you know, he's being pursued. He apparently jumped over two or three large crevices, was like a rocket down the, down the side of the mountain, um, seemingly frightened by something. Something spooked the dude. That was the last time that anyone saw Carter alive. Then some speculate, you know, is that Sasquatch got him, right? But, you know, they, they performed a search for Jim Carter. Um, despite a large search of the area for weeks by experienced search and rescue teams, no trace of Carter was found. Only a discarded film box at the point where he had taken a picture was discovered. That's creepy. When Carter's tracks reached the steep side of Ape Canyon, the, the searchers were amazed to see that Carter had been in such a hurry that he went right down the steep canyon walls. But they did not find him at the bottom of the canyon as expected. The tracks were traced by a plane again towards the Eagle Creek Ranger Station before they disappeared into complete wilderness. Um, this is a quote from uh, this, this cat, Bob Lee. Uh, Carter's complete disappearance is an unsolved mystery to this day, Bob Lee says. A member of the Seattle Mountain Search and Rescue Unit who was involved in the operation to find Carter, Lee was a very experienced Portland mountaineer, and his credentials include that he was the leader of the 1961 Himalayan exp ex Expedition, uh, an advisor to this 1963 American Expedition, uh, Lee said that every time he got cut off from the rest of the searchers during the long search, he got the feeling that someone was watching him and that there was something strange on, on the high slopes of the mountain. He described the search as the most eerie experience I have ever had. I could feel the hair on my neck standing up. It was eerie. I was unarmed except for my ice uh, axe. And believe me, I never let it go. So, I mean, this dude... Himalayan Mountains? Come on, man. And this dude's a stud, right? He's, he's kind of a bad dude. He's got some balls. So they combed the canyon, no, you know, one end to the other for five days. Sometimes there was many as 75 persons in the search party, but no sign of Carter or his equipment um, was found, Lee said. After two weeks, the search was called off. Seventy years later, and Jim's remains or equipment, nor Jim's remains or equipment were ever found. I mean, what do you guys think about this one? Um, I'm not sure what basket this goes into myself. Maybe more of a missing 411. You know, Dave Polites. It's absolutely bizarre. Moving on to 1980, the eruption of Mount St. Helens. I remember that. I was like 10. Um... I found plenty of rumors on the web about first responders, um, the National Guard coming across remains of deceased Sasquatches. Sasquatch, I guess. Uh, civilians witnessing all sorts of military activities connected to, you know, with these rumors, such as sta staging and guarding bodies for removal. They were loading them, loading them on trucks, um, throwing tarps over them. You know, hauling them off the mountain. You know, some of the bodies being burnt 
They said to have been burnt, covered in mud, obviously. There was large mudslides, like 70-mile-an-hour mudslides and, you know, tons of ash. Just, just terrible. More than one witness claiming to see Chinook helicopters fly overhead about 150 feet, carrying cargo nets containing three to, you know, half a dozen dead Bigfoot bodies. Uh, describing them as hairy, obviously. Uh, gray ash-coated arms and legs. Uh, more stories out there about this subject, but I find you know some of these kind of hard to take. Seem a little more outlandish. I didn't do the research. I probably should look into it, but I wonder if there was a spike of sightings in this, uh, maybe not this area, but from this area to surrounding areas and abroad in you know the 80s. I heard some guy saying um, in British Columbia there was a spike in you know, the summer and so, so on. So maybe they just migrated out of there, the ones that, that survived. It'd be cool to know. So there you have it. The, it's the Battle of Ape Canyon, man. It's a pretty wild one. Um, I think a lot of it's credible. I mean, there's, there's a Boy Scout camp around there somewhere, I guess, on Spirit Lake. or And I think it's quite a ways away from that location. And some entertain the idea of, you know, okay, a bunch of Boy Scouts are up on the top, you know, of the canyon throwing stones down. But with all the shooting, man, you know, that's a that's a bit ridiculous that they would keep on doing that. Um, I don't really find that plausible, but that's, you know, it's a skeptic's easy way out. You know, bam, they're done. So I'd like to know what you guys think. You know, email me. You know, I guess I guess apes throw more than poop when they're pissed off. You know, these guys are chucking small boulders, rocks. So that's the story. And so remember, please shoot me an email with your crazy and your strange and your crazy strange stories, paranormal, Bigfoot, UFO, you name it. I want to hear about it want to read it on the program have you on the show interview you i want to hear your story sorry you had a frog in my throat but email me at crazy strange days at gmail.com d-a-z-e so that's crazy strange days at gmail.com good night all i am out Thank you.